Hello, and welcome to the Frank and Fearless podcast by And Health, hosted by none other than the founder, CEO, and managing director of And Health, Bronwyn LeGrice. This show will be inviting brilliant individuals who are pushing the boundaries of science, health, and innovation to join us for a chat as we learn more about their inspiring journeys, both personal and professional. In the spirit of reconciliation, And Health acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This second session was recorded in October 2023 in Perth, and Roman had the pleasure of interviewing Managing Director and CEO of Oncores Medical, Dr. Kath Giles, in front of a live audience. Over to you, Bronwyn. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this beautiful day in Perth. You guys all live here. I came from here, but I don't live here anymore, so I'm very much appreciating the weather. I'm Bron LeGrice, I'm the CEO of Ant Health, and this is the second Frank and Fearless that we've done nationwide. It is a new initiative for Ant Health. I'm fearless. Kath has to be frank. That's the rule. So for those that don't know Dr. Kath Giles, she is the Managing Director and Chief Executive of Oncores Medical, which is a Perth-based company focused on improving the accuracy of breast cancer surgery. She's also a venture partner at Brandon Capital Partners, which is Australia's largest life sciences venture capital firm. And she joined them in 2012. Prior to this, because she is, you know, committed to a life of pain and interest, um, she was actually at Stone Ridge Ventures with some friends of mine. So she's had quite a long venture capital career and she's moved to the other side. And in a panel we ran today, it was interesting that people were like, which side is the dark side? So we might get into that a bit later. Until recently, she did practice as a medical doctor, mainly working within the surgical field. And before entering the commercial world, she spent a few years working in clinical medicine, gaining a range of experience. She's a non-executive director of Sonic Healthcare, and she is a director of the National Reconstruction Fund, which we will touch on in a limited capacity because it's evolving. And she's a director of the Curtin Commercialisation Advisory Board. And she graduated with her medical degree with honours, has an MBA from UWA, so and a graduate of AICD, and also an old girl of MLC, I believe. Yep says the old girl of St Hilda's. No rivalry <laughs> required. So, Kath. Hi, Bron. Are you nervous? Oh, just a little. <laughs> Something to do with this big, you know, yeah, the- microphone <laughs> in front of my face. You were born in Perth. I was. Split your childhood between South Africa and Perth. How did that shape the Kath Giles we know today? Interesting. I think I've realised as I've got older that it shaped me more than I realised. So I am the daughter of an academic who I was born when he was on sabbatical leave in Perth. And then we moved back to South Africa till I was eight. And then my parents made the decision to move to Australia because they felt that when we were adults that their children would leave South Africa. They could see where they thought things were going. And they moved to Australia for a better life for us. Now that I'm in my 40s, which is the age my dad was when he left South Africa, he left behind a really awesome career, a career where he was looking to make an impact on cancer outcomes as well through the development of new drugs for cancer. And he left behind a fantastic career, all of his superannuation and all of that to move. And both mum and dad's families were all there and they did that to bring us to a place where they knew that they could bring their children up in a much safer 
wonderful place to live that was worth all the sacrifices that they made to do that. So I think that that was important to me for a lot of reasons. I guess the final thing to say with that is Dad really did make a career sacrifice to come to Perth. So he was a professor in Cape Town at uh, UCT, which at the time was a really well-regarded institution, and he got the only um, lecturer position that had been advertised in chemistry in WA for, like, plenty of years. So he came back to be a senior lecturer at Murdoch University and sort of restarted his career there, had to start without any pension or superannuation. So that was what they did for us. So I think, how has that shaped me? It shaped me because I feel so appreciative of the opportunity we have in WA. What a beautiful place to live. We have a safe, wonderful place to raise our children. We have the great, amazing opportunities in the outdoors activities that we have. Having just come back from the US, you know, you drive around and there's just so much concrete and, you know, we get to drive just moments out of the city and you see the trees and the just, you can't help but have a feeling of well-being here. So I think I always was super appreciative of what we have in WA. And I also recognised that from a really early age that we didn't, what we didn't have was the processes to help take our scientists' awesome discoveries into the clinical benefit. And so I think that I have been passionate about advocating for Western Australia and how great it is and passionate also about helping improve things for our scientists so that they can make the impact in the world that they deserve. And that's the end of our... (laughs) (laughs) Graduated from MLC... In 1995, so there is yeah. a real risk that we passed each other oh, at yeah. a school social yeah. or, you On know. Sports field somewhere. Sports field or, yeah. you know. But the, you then studied medicine at UWA and went into it being a medical doctor for a whole 18 months. Oh, yeah. Before <laughs> retreating back to the safety of university to do your MBA Talk us through why, even at that point in your career, you went, okay, I need to go and do something as well. Yep. I was going to go back to Dad. Uh, <laughs> so I always had a huge love of science. My, and my grandma was a teacher and uh, that instilled in me a love of science from a really young age. And I thought science was where I wanted to go. And Dad said, no, don't do that. <laughs> um, he said, if you want to make a difference in the world, he said, go be a doctor because he was collaborating at the time with doctors in nuclear medicine to try and create molecular targeting agents. And he said, the people that people listen to are the doctors. And if you can take your love of science and really want to do something with it, study medicine. And so I studied medicine, loved the first three years, which were all science, and then realised when we got into the clinical practice, having no doctors in my family, that it probably wasn't the best career option for me. But... I stuck at it and finished the degree because even though I'd completed a full science degree by the end of three years, it wouldn't have been recognised and I would have had to go back to the beginning. So managed to get through it, did my internship year because you needed that to get to general registration and then thought maybe I could continue this and three months into the first resident year thought, no, no, it's time to <laughs> this, you know, great career but it's not going to be a great career for me. So then you went into investment. So it feels yeah. like frying pan fire, a little bit. But why investment? So, you know, you started at the Stone Ridge in 2006. Yep. For those that, you know, aren't aware, like we've got a lot of venture firms that go way back, kind of beyond the ones that take the headlines these days. 
So investment manager for Stonebridge in 2006. Why investment? Well, that's a good story. I didn't even know that was a thing. (laughs) So I left medicine and I guess maybe it's worth saying why. I realised it wasn't a career for me. It was many things over many years, but in the end it was because got really frustrated with knowing that there was a better way, there was a better way we could treat patients and being often being the only junior doctor sitting there knowing that this patient should be on these drugs or this should be happening, but it wasn't happening and I wasn't able to make it happen. So that really was, I found incredibly frustrating and also getting told, well, this is the way we've always done things, so this is going to be the way that we do things going forward. And the other thing is I got too close to the patients. I have way too much empathy to be a doctor and I didn't want to change that. I quite like that. And I knew for me to continue to be able to survive in that career, I would have to change. And that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I had no idea what I was going to do. I still meet people who I studied medicine with and they're like, oh, so did you start a fashion business? No, no, <laughs> Fashion business. So there's yeah. another line of questioning. <laughs> and went... I investigated all sorts of things. I interviewed for a drug rep role, got told that would be a really bad idea because I wouldn't be able to sell their product if I knew there was something better. And I thought, yep. (laughs) Why didn't I think of that before I went to the interview? (laughs) And my husband had done an MBA and changed his career and he had a bunch of friends who'd similarly gone from, you know, all sorts of backgrounds, gone through the MBA and found something that they were far happier in. So I went into the MBA as a journey of discovery, was really lucky that the venture capital unit that they used to run at UWA was super highly regarded by everyone as the unit that was the best kind of way that you could get real life experience in your MBA. Did the unit, met Rob Newman and Matt Callahan, who were both possibly Hawley. I don't know if he was there as, <laughs> as a lecturer as well. They came in and were guest lecturers and then had an opportunity to work with them, but I did have a year at a startup diagnostics company before I started at Strange. Right. Okay. And so many stories in this industry have Matt Callahan in them. Oh, they do. <laughs> and Rob Newman. Yes. <laughs> so you did work with a number of startups and you co-founded Finity Sports and yes. Dr. K's Breast Checker. Yes. Which was an early indicator of your area of interest, I think. Must have been. Yeah. So what about those startups? What did you learn? Did they work? Did they not work? What would you do differently if you could go back and do those same startups now? Well, both of those were incubated at Stone Ridge. So I had the, I guess, the luxury of having all that support around. Finity is probably a shorter story. So Finity was a startup that Rob Newman and I did together. So it was Rob's idea. Rob was training for Hawaiian Ironman at the time. And he That's loved such his... a venture capital thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I haven't done one, so oh, maybe that's... No. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he had a gadget to track his run, he had a gadget to track his bike ride, and he had nothing to track his swim. And so he invented uh, using accelerometers, and, you know, this was back in 2009, invented a little pod. I sewed together the hat that we stuck the pod in, we went and tested it on a whole bunch of swimmers at our swimming squad. And it worked... And it was so something before Garmin had your swim tracker on your swim watch, uh, had IP around it, but that one sort of was coming to an important point in time for growth and things at the same time that I had my first daughter, which was so I sort of didn't really do much more with it 
then and then Rob was doing it by himself and I, I can't actually remember in the haze of sleeplessness, I can't remember exactly why it didn't work out but I think that it was also partly because companies like Garmin had started to develop their own solutions. Yeah, and Dr K's breast checker. Ah, so that was incubated within one of our portfolio companies. So we had a company called Lingopal holding. Uh, and so this was all just at the launch of the iPhone and the Apple store. And Lingopal, uh, Richard Johnson, he came in and he had a translating phrase book. So he'd been catching the train around Europe on one of those passes and he you know, wanted to go be able to strike up conversations with people. And so he had a palm card system where he could translate, you know, a number of languages into other languages with you know, key phrases that backpackers would enjoy when they were wanting to meet other backpackers. And so we took that and created an iPhone app out of it. And it was launched on the iPhone store and it translated, it was a talking phrase book, translated 42 languages into another 42 languages. And then... Um, Sounds like it would still have utility for a large yes. community of backpackers, but... Quite possibly, <laughs> quite possibly. Uh, and then he wanted to do something in the medical space, and so I said, okay, well, if it's, you know, for something that I think is a, a good, you know, some, some way in that we can really help people by doing it. So we set up the uh, breast checker. It was not my idea to call it Dr K's breast checker. That was everyone else's idea. But it was an app. And again, this was 2010, uh, that was to help educate women and uh, around how to check your breasts because it's more than just feeling them and it's more than just feeling them on the first of the month. You know, there are a number of other things that you need to look for, but then it's also around making sure that they had a way to track it. So it would record what you felt so that you knew the next time. I don't know about you, but I'm really busy. I can't remember the last time, you know, when I did a self-examination or what I happened to feel when I did it. It was a way for you to keep track of it so you knew what was going on. Uh, we partnered with McGrath Foundation and Breast Cancer Care WA, which is great. Uh, and then, common thread, Hope was born at the, within two weeks of it getting launched. So it was launched on the App Store. It was available for a while. And unfortunately, that also petered out just a lack of having the time and availability to do things with it. Yeah. So that's a really interesting thing and it's not on my questions. So I'm yeah. going off script. Yeah. Which is, so you and I are both mothers of two girls. Yeah. Right? But also this realisation that when you do have a child, despite any superhuman powers other people think might think that you have, you do have less available time and it does impact your career. So what would you give young female entrepreneurs and or even, not even young, but just female entrepreneurs and, and women entrepreneurs who are trying to balance that kid and start, well, two kids, one corporate, one human, generally. What advice would you give those women who are trying to do everything at once? Oh, good one. Each to their own, because yeah. I think everyone has a different set, a different way they, different outcomes they want, different things that they prioritise. So for me personally, I think I made a mistake in that first because I tried to keep so hope would go to sleep when she was two weeks old and I'd be on my email and trying to work and do things and I therefore didn't get any sleep because I should have been sleeping when the baby slept and I would say, I, you know, if I'd had that time again, I would just take the time off. When the baby's born, take the time off. It goes so fast and just enjoy the ride for what it is. But sometimes life doesn't enable, you know, that wasn't what life threw up at that point in time. 
I think though it changes so much as they go through all the various stages. I think when they were in the two to six or seven stage, it was kind of fun to go over east for two nights. So I got to have warm coffee. Hello, and, that would be me. Yeah. And it was a break and a relief. Then when it gets to the stage they're in, and, and any warm body will do to keep them fed, to keep them alive, to keep them, you know, not swinging off the rafters. But now that I've got a teenager and a 10-year-old, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder for me to leave. They are so adorable. And I know this is going to go so fast and it's not, you know, it might not last much longer. And also it's not any warm body anymore. It's really important that the parents there to listen to what they bring home. And it's, we've had a few rough times over the last few months of, you know, things to deal with and it's, they can't be dealt with by anyone else other than a parent, no matter how much grandparents and other wonderful people who love them want to be there for them parents yeah. yeah big people big problems yeah but I would say the one thing I would say is that I have for me it's always been really important to be there at their school events and things and that comes first above all work scenarios and being the CEO makes it a lot easier to do but then I expect that my staff are allowed to do the same thing too well, that's a really interesting thing. Similar to me, I think. So I started and Health as a Pregnancy Project, for those that don't know the story. And everyone's like, oh, you've got such a flexible approach to working. And I'm like, yep. Because <laughs> if we didn't, I wouldn't be here, right? Yeah, exactly. And so you can't do it exactly. for yourself and not do it exactly. for those that work. So that's the whole you've got to walk your talk. Yep. But, you know, speaking of walking the talk, when you were at Stone Ridge, female venture capital people were rare. Few and far between. I reckon yeah. I can think of three that go back that mm-hmm. far. And I certainly wasn't in Beach Capital in 2006 too, right? It was, it was pre-my VC days. Not and when that I, long pre-your VC But when days. I went into VC, it was still pretty yeah. unusual to have women in the team at all. You know, how did you deal with that environment? Because I think the environment is a little bit more accommodating of, of different genders than it used to be. So it used to kind yeah. of be that my experience was to be a woman in that industry or in male-dominant industry, you kind of just had to be one of the boys. So how did you cope with being... Were you the only woman at Stone Ridge? Yeah. Yep. Oh, well, Sophie and then Yu Yan were there in the back office. Yeah, OK. Yeah. But you, right. Only investor. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? How did you survive it? Oh, they were just the best people I ever got. Oh to my work God, with. is so, Matt Callahan sponsoring oh, yeah. this? <laughs> Although he did keep telling me he wanted to work with Alex, my husband, and now he gets to work with Alex. So it all but comes But you know, out. it was rare, right? So it was. But Rob and Matt and Hawley, I never felt, I guess from my point of view, I've always been raised that I can do. I was never raised as a, there was a girl and the boy in the family. It was you're all got equal opportunities, do whatever you want. You know, really strong grandmothers who both worked. And I guess I never, I've never felt like I couldn't do anything the boys could do. And Alex always giggled at me when we got married because he's like, you reckon you can do anything boys can do? I'm like, yep, why not? So, you know, again, I didn't have that kind of any thoughts around that. So I also wasn't looking for anyone to be making any yeah me feel in any other way and I have got to say that not only was I never did I never feel like because I was a woman I was either special different or any kind of not one of the team but also that what 
credit Robin Matt with so much is from day one when I came in with zero venture experience, so I had a almost complete MBA, a medical degree, I'd just been fired in a blaze of glory from my previous role. Uh, they took me on early and they made me feel like I was a partner from day one. I got access to all bits of information. I got involved in every discussion. They were incredibly inclusive around everything. There was never any... I think that's just the way they as people ran the company as well. So, so I, I would lucky. really like to dive into that you got fired in a blaze oh, yeah. of glory, but the questions go into how, why Onkarez, so I'm really torn. I'm actually going to go with why Onkarez, right? So yeah. I know a little bit of the background. You're at Branding Capital... Yeah. Why that piece of technology? What was the journey? And yeah. why is it that piece of technology that gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, alongside uh, when I finished in clinical medicine, what I, I did absolutely love being in surgery. I like sewing. It doesn't matter if it's fabric or people. And surgery was just always my thing. But I was never had the personality to be the surgeon. So, so no one's going to let me stitch even a button, let alone skin. <laughs> I'm not allowed to cut in the All surgery. Right. I'm just allowed to sew. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I continued at being a surgical assistant, which is like a tradies assistant for a surgeon. You have to hold things back, suck things out, and sew, sew people back together. And I absolutely loved being there, um, loved working in with the surgeons I worked with, and I... That funded my MBA and then I continued. I never wanted to lose my registration. Uh, my family really rely on the fact that they can get a referral when they're standing in front of the dermatologist's desk going, oh, I'll get text message, can you just send it now? I'm sorry, I haven't told you. So wanted to keep my registration and that was a great way to do it and also get to stay in theatre where I really love being and continued to always do that until the end of 2019 was the last time I was in theatre. So we can't tap you up for referrals anymore? Oh, no, I still, oh, yeah, okay. no, that's another story. And so having spent so much time in theatre, because during that time was sometimes half a day a week and sometimes there were weeks when I'd sometimes be there a couple of days, full days a week assisting, I spent a lot of time with a lot of surgeons. And when Sam South sat me down, when I got back from maternity leave from my second daughter and showed me the technology behind on careers, we were sitting at Ned's Cafe and I still can feel the feeling I felt when she started telling me about this project that was at the time called Microscope in a Needle and it was going to make brain biopsy safer. And that has turned into on careers. So I was just so excited. To me, it was just what surgeons were looking for, a new imaging technology that could help them Make, give them information to make better decisions to have better patient outcomes. And I could see how it could be spread widely across different surgeries. And so I started working with the team. And it had Chris Bell Saunders involved and she was like a legend and still is. So got involved with the team and then spent three years developing an investment case that I convinced the Brandon team was worth investing in. So even from the inside, it can take you three years yes. to create an investment case to get them to invest. That's probably a little bit of a learning yeah. for everyone, right? Because uh, we did a session today and we were talking about it's actually not about whether you convince the person you're pitching to. They have to be able to convince everybody else yes. in their investment team. But you've said before that one of your proudest accomplishments while working in private capital was Onkaraz winning the MedTech Innovator Program Value Award in 2019. That's a mouthful. Why? 
Well, I guess for, so I started, so Stone Ridge 2006 to 2010, Brandon 2012 to 2018 as an investment manager. All of that time searching for technology that in WA that could change the way we live. And particularly for me, it's always been an interest in finding medical technologies that do that. And so what had I heard? I'd heard that WA just didn't have it. The systems weren't there to make it happen. We didn't, there were, I was just told all the reasons why we couldn't do it. And it frustrated me. But at the same time, I was finding out about all this technology that none of us knew about that had been invented here and there and just slipped out the side. I think as Western Australians, you know, we weren't recognising that we had the ability to develop the technology more broadly, but even those didn't feel that we had the skills and capability and the resources required to do it in WA. So that was also part of why it's been always so important for me that On Careers gets developed firmly and grows in WA to show it can be done, to give others the confidence, because I can't go and say it can be done if I haven't done it. Can't do that. But even for me, who had all that belief in the fact that we had world-leading technology in WA and we could take that technology and do things globally, I still had that little, like, I'm just from WA kind of thing when I went into the MedTech Innovator Program. So it's the largest accelerator globally for medical devices. We were the first Australian company to get into the program at all. And it was, they get around, this year there were 1,200 applicants globally and they choose 24 to go into the program. And then we won the value award. And so getting to be part of the program and then winning that award that was voted by, that was an audience vote by venture capitalists and industry in the medical device industry, which the medical device industry globally is like the Perth community. Everyone knows everyone, all the gossip behind that. I mean, Tracy was with me recently in California and you know, we went, we hadn't been to that conference, or I hadn't been to that conference for four years, but oh my goodness, the amount of gossip that I got uh, on, you know, our competitors and who was doing what and all of that. So that, uh, that community is really small. The fact that we got that vote as the company that year that was going to provide the greatest value to healthcare, that was amazing. So, you know, little old company from Perth, where often we don't believe in ourselves and we're up there competing with the best of the best globally. And they recognised us as the ones with the solution that was going to make the real difference. It's not your only like. So uh, global finals infamous? of Hitch at the Palace. Well, we're not going to Infamous yet. I'm going to have another drink before we get into Infamous and Notorious. But global finals of Pitch at the Palace at St James Palace in London. Yeah. So probably one of the most, you know, fancy surrounds you can pitch in. What's that experience like? What does it add to the on career story? I will always look back on that as the time things changed for us. Yeah. So one of, one of the things for me going, I'm very much used to being someone, a producer. I'm not the main, I'm not in the cast. I'm not the actor. I don't, it really freaks me out to be up on so stage. So glad to have you here today. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the things that I was most scared about when I was put in as CEO of On Careers is that I don't like getting on stage. I don't want to do a pitch. I don't, I, like, I believe in it, but don't have, that's the way I'm going to be, you know, fail for everyone very publicly because I don't like public speaking. And also, whenever I used to, no matter how much enthusiasm I had for the project, I'd tell our friends about it and I would count the seconds till I could see their eyes roll back in their heads because they were like, 
oh yeah, Kat's such a nerd, uh, you know, and totally, because I wasn't explaining it right. And that's what Pitch at Palace changed. It was a global event. They ran boot camps and uh, events. In first, we got through in Perth and then in Brisbane to get through to that the global event. But the, along the way, they taught you how to write a three-minute pitch that was relatable and immediately captured attention. And you had very strict rules all the time. You would get trumpeted off the stage and things. So trumpeted. there was a, oh, trump, by yes. a person and in drums, like regalia. Oh, yes. oh amazing. Yep. So yeah. going to adopt that for the next and health event. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, because, and I think because I was so used to the VC way of doing things and we get all really scientific and ask the science and detailed and ask the sciencey questions and it was a complete rewind and getting out of that mindset and going, no, I have to be able to talk to someone who's never heard about this before and I've got to capture them in the first 20 seconds. And we had mentors who came and helped us and they were completely out of our field. And that's what advice I'd always give to someone now. Go tell it to someone who's not in your industry. Tell you, share your pitch with someone who's not in your industry who has no idea about your technology and get their feedback because that's going to be the most valuable way that you can make sure you connect with someone the first time they hear it. Yeah, I'm very grateful for having been in that competition despite the fact that yeah. <laughs> so, Stonebridge, Brandon, Encarez, National Reconstruction Fund, West Australian, female entrepreneur, what does that mean to you? It definitely was uh, a very surprising phone call to get. Um, I've got to say, along, alongside what else I've shared tonight, I'm a, you don't want to see me at the supermarket. <laughs> Or my children get so annoyed because they'll <laughs> want to buy Oreos, for example. I'm like, no, nope, Oreos are made in Thailand uh, or Indonesia or something. They, you know, Arnott's are made in Australia. And I've been like that for a very long time. Is it made in Australia? No, you can't have it if it's not. But it is something that I'm very passionate about. It's not just in the medical field, but also in everything else supporting Australian made. I think when I heard, however long it was ago that pharmaceuticals were one of the largest export industries that we used to have and it's not anymore and now we're importing everything from everywhere else you know every time we go to the pharmacy is that one made in Australia oh can you give me the one that's made in Australia unless we as Australians support Australian made Australian businesses are not going to be able to manufacture here it is something that I'm rather passionate about it's really interesting so I, I grew up on a dairy farm in southwest WA. And when I grew up, WA was a net exporter of dairy products. And then our major manufacturer was bought by a Kiwi firm called Fonterra, you might have heard of them. And they actually took a lot of the IP back to New Zealand and then they thought they'd be able to sell it. And I know this because I used to be friends with the CTO of Fonterra. And then they basically just used WA dairy farmers to offset price fluctuations for their owners, which were the cooperative farmers in New Zealand. And what ended up happening was that when I grew up on the school bus, I went past hundreds of dairy farms and there's now like less than 100 dairy farms in all of WA and WA now can't supply its own white milk requirements. Hmm. Um, and, but I grew up with not just made in Australia, but if I touched something made by Devondale in Victoria <laughs> and my dad saw it in my fridge... It was a serious issue. Unfortunately, I have two dairy intolerant family members. So now there's oat milk in my fridge and he's turning over in his grave. 
But now I'm in a Victorian supermarket hunting for Devondale because so much of our dairy is not made in Australia. And that's what happens when we forget the importance. Mm. And, you know, COVID illustrated that whole, like, what happens when you give up something you actually had Mm-hmm. quite a phenomenal competitive advantage in. Yeah. So without irrigation, my dad's production per gestation per cow doubled that of a irrigated farm in Canterbury, New Zealand. And he was farming on literally black sand in the southwest wow. of WA. Without irrigation, it was all about feed and science and he was really innovative. But now no one's doing it because no one can make any money. Mm. And, you know, I think your point is is that we all need to be the agents yeah. of change. Yep. Yep, there's, we need everyone involved in this. Yeah. So I'm going to flip again yeah. to some kind of more like what makes Kath tick? What things make you angry? By the way, this uh, is one of my favourite interview questions too. What was the last thing that made you really angry? It's the best interview question ever. But what well, makes you angry? Not that many things make me angry because I think anger is not a very – I'd rather try and change it uh, than get angry about it. However – there is one thing that really oh, no oh, two please things. Please let there yeah. be one. Yeah, no, there the are a couple of things. Blowing. <laughs> no, a couple of things. One, when people say, "Oh, we can't do it because we haven't done it before," or we've, you know, they've, they've, it's all of the history. We yeah, can't that's do it not the that. way we've done it. That's, that's not, not the way we've done we do it. it. That's not, not the way the we, way do, we it. do it. It's too hard. We can't cope with the change. We can't do that. What inspires you day to day? Uh, Don't make me cry because I'm very emotional about these <laughs> kinds of things. Uh, my team, yeah, uh, they are awesome. So what was really brilliant was feeling quite nervous about going to the U- US. It was I hadn't been for four years. The last trip was a dead set nightmare with um, some kind of debacle happening every day, and so feeling a little bit nervous. And as we were the last hour or few two before we left the office, the team had developed the new workstation that they've got the new cover on and it looks really professional like it could you know is not out of place in an operating theater and so Simon and I got to go downstairs and fondle the machine and that was the best it's a thing. tech thing fondling yeah. machines it's totally okay <laughs> it was the best thing I could have possibly done before I left because yeah. that was really inspiring that you know I, I wouldn't have anything to tell anyone in the US about yeah. without the amazing team that's doing all the hard work here. So a couple of um, not pre-viewed questions now. Yep. Just moving into the fun part. You can have a drink if you need. Excellent. So we had a fun text exchange today where yep. we were talking about the fact that we ice, we make and ice our own kids' birthday cakes. And I, I basically proffered up a demented unicorn. And Kath then goes, oh, this is mine. And it looks like an Instagram baking person photo. And I was chatting to um, Helga from Brandon. She was, oh, well, Giles... She overperforms at everything. <laughs> How driven are you to conquer the things that are put in front of you? Ah, well, I am someone who suffers from a lot of fears oh. and a lot of anxiety around things. And I have often found, so I had, and I had a really bad time after getting fired in the blaze of glory in my late 20s. And so had to work really hard to dig myself out of a hole then. And I found one of the best ways to conquer the anxiety and conquer my fears is to push into to make myself believe in myself that I can do something so I've done all sorts of things because of trying to get a bit more confidence by feeling the fear and doing it anyway so all sorts of things so you know your brand biotech WA like you're Mm. the face of medtech WA or you're the NRF person you're the 
standout, you know, the CEO that, you know. But I believe that you've been the face of some other brands. <laughs> <laughs> Told you I have one you didn't know about. <laughs> A little bit of brand modelling in you. A long time ago before wrinkles and grey hair. And which brands did you represent? Oh, not very many. It was a very unsuccessful career. Uh, but the RAC might be one that still I still get a check for. <laughs> <laughs> so Kath did some brand modelling when she was younger, but I had to have one question. She didn't know I had any intelligence on. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where you got that from. I had any secrets, but that I was like... <laughs> properly sworn to secrecy. So it was like... Pain of death, I'm not allowed to disclose my source. Like all good podcast journalists. Um, so I'm going to give you the last word. As everyone knows, I very rarely give up the last word. Three things that you're super proud of to end on an inspirational note. Uh, my kids that, well, on careers, because we're getting to, yeah, I would never realised that I'd have an opportunity to create something where I could make it the way I thought it should be. I learned from the amazing time that I had with Rob and Matt and that I get to make the rules and change it. And I think that that's, yeah, I'm really, really proud of what, you know, I've built with my team. Fingers crossed we've still got hurdles to jump, but fingers crossed we get there. And you can have two. Yeah, I think two. Just two? Yeah. Everyone join me in thanking Dr. (laughs) Charles. Thanks for listening to Frank and Fearless by And Health. For more information about And Health, our guests and the topic discussed, go to the show notes. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and give us a rating. Check us on LinkedIn under at And Health or go to our website, www.andhealth.com.au for more information. We'd like to thank And Health's core partners, Murdoch Children's Research Institute, Novartis, Planet Innovation, Roche, Telstra Health, RMIT University, Curve, HPM Executive and Health Excel.